TED Audio Collective. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Hi, everyone. Susan David here with a bonus episode. A special coda to our last episode where we talked about routines and why creating them is crucial to our well-being. I wanted to dig a bit deeper into this, so I sat down with James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. I love the actionable way James thinks about maintaining routines and habits, and hope that you will too. Hi, James. Thanks for joining us. Hi, great to talk to you. So in the last episode, we explored how people's routines have been shattered and how people feel almost like their habits have been upended from their lives. And given that you are the habits expert, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about why habits in the best of times when things are normal are important for us. You know, what is the psychological role of habits in everyday life? Hmm. Well, the question about the psychological role is interesting because usually when people say, and this is also true, habits are a method for achieving results. But the psychological piece is an interesting one. And this is a, in atomic habits, I refer to this as a concept called identity-based habits. The idea that your habits are how you embody a particular identity. So for example, every morning that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. Uh, Anytime you write one sentence, you embody the identity of a writer. And the way that I like to summarize it is every action you take is like a vote for the type of person that you want to become. And so, um, you know, no, doing one push up does not transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And no, writing one sentence does not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. I think that's so powerful. And in the context of the current virus, how would you see that playing into people's current situations, especially if the identity that they'd wanted to become or that they were building towards is an identity that is no longer available to them? So for instance, if we are very tied into an identity of what I mean as a professional in my professional environment or I have a particular job as a sole proprietor, but now my business is going under. Um, What are some of the ways that we can start thinking of what I can do right now to help me maybe begin to vote uh, with my behaviors for a new, maybe different identity, one, one that is now available to me in the current context? Yeah, that's a great question. They're kind of like a double-edged sword. Uh, that, you know, like your habits can either build you up or cut you down. 
But we all have felt that, you know, like you can either be the victim of your habits or you can be like the architect of them. And so what you're mentioning here, this concept of identity that, uh, that it not only can be a force for good, uh, but also it can make you a little brittle if you hang on to any one identity too much and then you lose that thing. And you hear from this from different groups, like, for example, in a military context, um, people may have a lot of pride in the fact that I'm a soldier and that's part of their identity. But then once they leave the army or leave the military, now suddenly I've lost that thing. So what am I now? Uh, you hear the same thing from athletes. I felt this in my own athletic career. I played all the way through college and then all of a sudden you graduate and suddenly I'm not an athlete anymore. What did this use? This was a huge part of my identity for 18 years. Now what? So when you, when you lose that thing, it can feel like you're losing a sense of yourself and that's very demotivating or in the case of a business going under or whatever, there's a lot going on there. So instead, sometimes what I recommend is that you look for aspects of that identity that can transcend context. So for example, if you're a soldier, you could say I'm a soldier and I lost that. Or you could say I'm a good teammate. I'm incredibly reliable. I follow through on what I start. And all of those are aspects of being a good soldier but they also don't require you to be in the military in order for them to work. And so right now, I think that type of uh, mental adaptability, that type of mental flexibility is really important in your identity so that you can look for ways in this new context to still show up. And maybe the business isn't going as well as it had, and maybe you're not a founder anymore or CEO or whatever, but you can still look for ways to be a leader or look for ways to think creatively or look for ways to be a builder who makes things and, um, maybe you're not making them in the same way that you were before, but you can still find aspects of your identity in different areas. So I think that level of flexibility is one way to do it. Um, the second thing is you don't have to give it up entirely, right? And so you may not be able to do the behavior in the same way, but you can still direct your attention towards aspects of that. You may not be able to meet with people face to face the way that you normally do. But you could surround yourself with similar thinkers online, whether it's curating your social media feed or you follow on Twitter or whatever. You are just looking for ways to allocate your attention toward the same topics that reinforce your identity, even if you can't do the thing the way you normally would. So I think that level of flexibility and adaptability in your beliefs and identity and also the ability to allocate your attention to something that maybe can be a placeholder for that for the time being. Those are two possible strategies. That's really helpful. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to cue our attention so that the right. behavior is then triggered more frequently and more predictably. Yeah, I think that's a good description of it. Yeah, it's like, how can I set up this environment so that I'm triggered to do the right thing rather than triggered to do the distracting thing? And no, I should say, like, no single choice like this is going to radically transform your behavior. But you can imagine the benefit of making... 10 or 20 or 50 little choices like this, suddenly now you're in an environment where it's almost like you feel yourself being pulled along in the productive fashion rather than having to like fight upstream just to get something done. Incredibly helpful. How would you define or draw the distinction between what are maybe called good habits versus bad habits? And I think especially, mm. you know, in the, again, in the context of being at home, maybe being frustrated, everything feels out of control. What people are describing so much is that their basic routines, things like exercise and eating healthily or you know, getting enough sleep, that, that these things are becoming much more difficult. And I'm just wondering how you might think about some of these baseline healthy versus unhealthy habits 
and how people might get unstuck or regain their foothold when it comes to these these core habits that are just so critical to our well-being? Yeah, that that actually is a very good question. What is a good habit? What is a bad habit? Because people are like, well, okay, if this is so bad for me, why do I keep doing it? You know, like, and I think the answer is there's one way to think about this uh, across time. So for example, pretty much every behavior produces multiple outcomes across time. And broadly speaking, we could say there's like an immediate outcome or a near-term outcome, and there's an ultimate outcome. And you'll find that for many of your bad habits, the immediate outcome is actually pretty favorable. Like the immediate outcome of eating a donut is great. It's sweet, it's sugary, it's tasty, it's enjoyable. It's only the ultimate outcome if you keep doing it for a year or two years or five years that's unfavorable. Or smoking a cigarette. Like the immediate outcome might be that you get to socialize with coworkers or that you get to take a break from work or you curb your nicotine craving. Uh, It's only the ultimate outcome that is unfavorable. With good habits, though, it's often the reverse. Like the immediate outcome of going to the gym for a week isn't really a whole lot. Like if anything, your body's sore, you look the same in the mirror, the scale hasn't really changed. It's only the ultimate outcome if you stick with that habit for a year or two or five that is favorable. And so that mismatch between good habits service in the long run, but bad habits service in the moment that is one of the that misalignment and managing that is one of the great challenges of building better habits. As much as possible, you want to find ways to pull the long-term costs and consequences of your bad habits into the present moment. So you feel a little bit of the pain right now and you're like, oh no, I should avoid that. And to find ways to pull the long-term rewards and benefits of your good habits into the present moment. So you're like, yeah, that felt good. I should repeat that again. This was enjoyable. And this is one of the things that I think it's so important that I, in Atomic Habits, I call it the cardinal rule of behavior change, which is behaviors that get immediately rewarded, get repeated. Behaviors that get immediately punished, get avoided. And um, it's really about the speed with which you feel good or feel bad about the behavior that teaches your brain, hey, I should avoid this next time or I should repeat it. So I think that's probably the distinction to make between good and bad behaviors. It's not that bad habits never serve you. It's just that the costs of your good habits are in the present and the costs of your bad habits are in the future. It's like you're accruing a debt. You know, your bad habits have to be repaid at some point. And your good habits are like you're building up credit that can be redeemed in the future. And so uh, that misalignment across time, I think, is the, the primary difference between the two. So if people are stuck in an experience in which they are finding themselves engaging in habits that are becoming bad habits uh, embedded and, um, you know, more, more grounded in their everyday lives. What are some ways that people can immediately, like what is the, what, what's the, you know, smallest, biggest thing that you might advise to someone who feels like they are either stuck or that they've completely lost their foothold when it mm. comes to their habits and routines. I love that phrase, the smallest, the smallest, biggest thing. It's great because it's like, what is the thing that's going to pay off in the long run? But what is the first step to doing that now? What is the easiest way to do the thing that pays off in the future? Um, so my recommendation is a, a little strategy that I refer to as the two-minute rule. And the two-minute rule basically says, take whatever habit you're trying to build and you scale it down to something it takes two minutes or less to do. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page. Do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And I think that's a much deeper truth about habits that often gets overlooked, which is 
a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? It has to become the standard in your life before you can worry about optimizing or scaling it up. But if you can't master the art of showing up, then even your best ideas just remain a theory and uh, that you can't optimize the theory. You need, you need something in, in practice if you want your behavior to actually improve. So for someone who feels like they're stuck in chaos right now, it might be, you know, you get out of bed and you make your bed. Or it might be that you, in the craziness of the day, are just sitting down for two minutes with a person that you love and connecting with them. Is that pretty much what that might look like in coronavirus days, our new normality? Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, uh, become a meditator or do a silent meditation retreat becomes meditate for 60 seconds. Or, uh, you know, read 30 books becomes read one page, etc. Thank you so much, James. I wonder just, I'm curious to hear how maybe some of your habits might have been challenged during this time and also how you're trying to, you know, maintain your sense of focus and clarity. You know, are you finding yourself more distractible? How are you navigating that? Like, what are you dealing with? Um, and and almost what, how you're learning, um, you know, is in, is informing how you're navigating the situation right now. Yeah, you do learn a lot about yourself during experiences like this. Um, I think probably the biggest negative change I've had in my habits is related to nutrition and eating. It's just so when you uh, aren't supposed to leave, you stock up on all this food. So we have a bunch of extra food in the house right now. And my brain is like, well, you could eat all of this right now instead of space get out over two weeks. Um, so I definitely am like eating more than I probably should be or more than I normally would. So that's kind of an interesting one. The other thing that I'm noticing is, and again, this is just personal to me, how you, uh, what your default is for coping with stressful situations. My default seems to be that I try to like somehow work my way out of it. Uh, and so I'm finding a tendency to overwork right now. Um, I think for a lot of people, I'm, you know, I, I don't have kids. So, uh, you know, if you're a parent and you have kids running around, maybe it's much harder to work than normal. But for me, it's like, well, I have to be at home. I can't go anywhere. And so then you find yourself like get, getting locked into this thing where you're like, actually, what I need to do is a little more self-care and take a break. I need to go take a walk or like, um, yeah, stretch my legs a little bit or go get some fresh air. Um, so I'm finding that those two, those are probably the two most negative tendencies that I'm having right now. And uh, it's interesting to try to think about like the best way to rectify that. So fascinating. Last quick question. And that is... I think these kinds of opportunities uh, can often also, in the midst of the struggle, present growth to us. Um, and we know that this is true, that when people experience challenge and uh, trauma often in their lives, there's also accompanying with it some kind of growth. What are some ways that people might be able to use this space as an opportunity to think about their habits or to uh, even factor in how they might want to reset their lives, what they might not want to rush back to that was a default, but that maybe wasn't working for them. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that just a little bit. I think just knowing that that's possible is a great first step. Knowing that I can interpret this stimulus or this stress as something that is growth inducing rather than, than growth inhibiting. And there are a lot of, there's, you're right, there's a ton of evidence for this being true. The whole concept of hormesis, where you like, you know, respond to a small uh, stimulus with growth, or pretty much every uh, reasonable strength training approach is based on this 
you place a little bit of stress on your body and you grow in response. And I think if you're willing to interpret the current situation through that frame, you don't have to discard the fact that there are many negative things going on, that uh, this is also a sad time and that there are some terrible things happening. But as much as possible, we can take the aspects of it and try to use it as a way to induce growth, as a way to upgrade our mindsets, as a way to steal our resilience and our resolve, and to know that you'll come out of this even stronger. Uh, I think that's definitely possible. And I think it starts with accepting the idea that you can even do it in the first place. And as, as long as you're willing to see this as a potential driver of optimism and of ability and skill, it can become that for you. James, thank you so, so much. This has been so helpful to me and I'm sure to our listeners too, especially during these really challenging times. Of course. Thank you so much. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode of Checking In with Susan David, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. Be well, stay safe, and let's check in next week.